Good morning. It's great to be back in the house of the Lord with my brothers and sisters. Today we'll be at Romans chapter 6. And in the last five chapters, Paul has demonstrated what justification is in the, in the fact that we are justified by faith. He went over how the Jews felt like they had it figured out because they had the law and how the Gentiles were ignorant of the law. So they were absolved of any accountability to it. And, and we learned that they were both wrong. It's, it's all, all have fallen short of the glory of God deserving his wrath. In chapters 1 through 4, he uses the word grace five times. In chapter 5, he uses the word grace five times. Grace is this outpouring of God's love his, to the justified person in his justification for us. Grace is the perseverance of God producing holiness in the child of God. Grace has in view sanctification. It's applied and then sanctification becomes a product of this justification by faith through grace or grace through faith. Sanctification is sanctos. It means where we get the word saint from. It means set apart. So the set apart ones, the saints. Uh, Unless you're Catholic, if you're a child of God, you're a saint. You have to earn it in the Catholic Church. We're all saints, those who are in Christ. So we're, we're justified. This grace is continually being poured out. And it's a process that begins at justification. It starts at justification, just goes on until the end of your life where you are fully sanctified, being glorified at death. It's only complete then. So Paul begins with another Q&A session with himself. And it's a response from what we learned in chapter 5, verse 20, where he says, Sin not only revealed the law, was not only revealed by the law, but the law also caused sin to increase. It was, and then he says, but where sin, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. There's a, in almost every commentary I read, there's a gentleman by the name, but I don't know if he's a gentleman. It was a, just a, a dirtbag, and his name was Rasputin. They called him the Mad Monk. And, uh, he was this kind of faith healer, and he would, he would take advantage of young women in order to heal them. Uh, just he, he attended uh, those parties that rhyme with the dog, the, the corgi, to spare our young listeners. He attended those and religious services with the same devotion. He... He did these things without restraint, and he would say, I'm, I'm sinning so I can acquire more grace, because where grace, where sin abound, the grace abounded much more. The nickname Rasputin means debauched one. So he was a teacher, a quote-unquote religious leader doing all these things, 
with the name the debauched one. And this is what is referred to as antinomianism or anti-law. The law is void because of grace. We know that's false. We've learned that already. Or breaking the law is a means of acquiring more grace, which is also false. A fatal flaw would be to assume that we could live any way we want, claiming to be in Christ. Well, I'm saved, so therefore I can act in any manner I deem necessary to achieve whatever goal I have or whatever d- desire I would like to, to dive into. The power of the gospel is life-changing. It's not, you're not where you, you're not going to stay there. The gospel is the law and grace working together, producing holiness in the person. It's this redeemed lifestyle. Grace frees us from the shackles of the law. Grace makes us free in Christ, and then that law becomes our delight. Psalm 119, verse 97 says, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all the day. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, it says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, having all sufficiency in all things, may have abundance for every good work. That's grace. And then how would you know what a good work is apart from the law? You really can't. So in anticipation of these antinomians coming out of the woodwork and, and preaching this, hey, if you want more grace, just do a little more sinning, Paul heads it off at the pass here in Romans 6. And if you're able, I would ask that you would stand with me as we read Romans 6, verses 1 through 7. God's word says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer walk or no longer be slaves of sin, For he who has died has been freed from sin. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we come into your presence this morning to hear your holy word. Lord, as Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips. I'm not worthy to utter a single word of your truth. Lord, I pray that you use me in spite of me this morning. Let your word go forth and accomplish all you set it forth to do. Lord, use me in spite of me. Give the hearer the the ears to hear and me the words to speak. Most of all, let it bring glory and honor to you. Let it be manifested in our lives and all we say and do. And it's in the matchless name of Christ we all pray and all of God's children said. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? 
So we cross that threshold of justification into sanctification here in Romans. Galatians 5.13 tells us, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The term flesh is used to demonstrate our earthly desires, our, our sinful desires that's, that are still there. Ephesians 2.10 tells us, we're, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him, beforehand, that we should walk in them. We're not saved by works. Works do not produce salvation. If you want to say you're saved by works, you're saved by the works of Christ. Just like salvation or, or sanctification and good works are were ordained before the beginning of time, ordained beforehand. The Holy Spirit is working in us in his sanctifying work. It's continual. From, from justification unto death, it's continual. Then you'll be made completely like Christ upon death, incapable of sin, incapable of, of sadness, or any of these things that we struggle with in this world. Titus 2.14 tells us we are a people zealous for good works. That's the new man. Philippians 2.12 just reminds us to, to actively pursue good works by, by working out our own salvation, not, not working for your salvation, but working out the outpouring of that salvation in, in the fruit of the Spirit. And, and my, my, favorite, uh, my favorite is, uh, Mr. Matter of Fact, uh, James, when he says that that uh, in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 26, is where the body of the Spirit is, without the Spirit is dead, faith without works is dead also. And, and the Spirit here is, is uh, as we've learned before, that Spirit is really breath of the lungs. So if you, if you sum that all up, it would mean that, that good works is natural to the believer as breathing. If the, the body without breath, the Spirit, is dead, you're no longer breathing, you're, you're good for nothing, a, a dead faith... It, it, with, without works is, is good for nothing. A faith, I have faith. When you say you have faith with no works, I'll, I will show you my faith by my works is what the, the idea is. If there's no evidence of sanctification. There is really no evidence of a justified person. It's not. They, work, they go hand in hand. Saving grace is a life-changing grace. Not of works. But it works. Before we get too, too deep, um, I want you to keep in mind that, that what he is saying here is, is habitual sin, um, where, you're, where you're in this sin that, that you know better and, and you're just doing it because you want to do it. It's not necessarily sin that we struggle with on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, the difference is you won't stay there. You, you know, a believer can fall into great sin, but he won't stay there, and we'll get into that. So Paul, he asks this rhetorical question, and, and he, he gives his answer, and he says, certainly not, with, as, he's, as if he's yelling, certainly not. And some trans translations will read, God forbid, may it never be, this is no. This is the highest form of no. It carries the idea of absolute denial, like it, it shouldn't have even come to your mind kind of thought. It's meganeta. Genoito, it means may it never be. Paul has used this often in his writings to, 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 to 
to, to explain how outrageous the idea is to even think of, of such a thing. Now, God is glorified in the redemption of the sinner. So in that respect, sin, hold on, brings the glory to God in a roundabout way. It's not that we should sin to glorify God or to receive his grace, but sin, as all things do, ultimately bring glory to God. He is not glorified at the willful sin of a so-called saint. If you, if you entertain this idea, I would... I would I would question your salvation at best, and I would have to—I would have to just give you the gospel all over, because it's—it's it's that ridiculous. Again, saints can and do fall into to, to horrible sin, and the thing is, it's not going to be continual. They will seek help, and and they won't like it. A regenerated person is going to hate sin. He's going to loathe sin, even though for a, for a minute he will entertain it and, and fall into it, or even for a season. We have warnings against willful, blatant sin, and Paul tells us that we can be sick and even die from taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. We go over that every Sunday. 1 Corinthians 11.30 for this reason, many are weak and sick among you. Many sleep. Sleep means dead. They weren't taking a nap. Again, a justified person, they cannot, they cannot be in blatant sin and be okay with that. You would, you would cry out to God. You would reach out to someone, your brother or sister in Christ, and say, I'm struggling. Help me. MacArthur says, a justified person will be constantly brokenhearted over sin while simultaneously elated with his grace, just enamored by his grace. One, it was R.C. Sproul, he had the, had the three people on the stage and he says, this person represents Hitler and this person represents Christ and, and you're, you're here. He said, the funny thing is, the longer you go, the longer you walk with Christ, you th the idea is that you would think you would be more Christ-like or you would feel more Christ-like, and, and the reality is that you feel more like him, Hitler. You, you realize your wretchedness and the need for a Savior and that, that amazing grace that is granted to you through faith. Then we have another rhetorical question. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And Paul's really not giving any room for the antinomian here. He's, he's, he's not arguing for the truth. Like, well, have you considered? He's like, no, this is, this is what's true. He's, he's making this truth known without the slightest of cracks in it. So anything can creep in. Ephesians 2, 1 tells us we were dead in sin. Past tense, dead. On down in verse 5, we learn that we are made alive in Christ. It sounds odd. We were dead in sin. We died to sin, and then we were made alive. Dead, died, and then alive. So you're, you're like dead twice. We died to our old selves. As dead men walking in sin, our, our slave master, we were unable to break those chains in and of ourselves. We can't do it. And we have a third question. Or do you not know 
that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Do you not know is the same as saying, you, look, you should know better. This is ignorant. You know better. A rebuke. Baptizo here is, is, is not water baptism as, as, as we're, we, we think of it. Richard went over water baptism uh, a little bit Wednesday. Uh, the idea is immersion. We're, we're united to Christ, uh, being that we are, Paul's borrowing from the, the idea of immersion, like we're immersed into Christ. Uh, we're, we're, we're called the bride of Christ. You know, when I, when I married my wife, we, the two became one, but we're not literally two people. The idea that Paul is saying is we're immersed into Christ. In John 17, we are more than united as someone that stands alongside of another like I do my wife. John 17, 20, it says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Baptizo, immersion, and united from within, not just alongside. That's the idea that Paul's saying, getting at here. Being baptized or, or immersed in Christ is being one with him. It means we died with him. He took our sin. He died. Our old man died. Christ's death was a submission to the Father's will. It was a choice to die, the most humiliating and painful death known, the one, most painful death anyone could die, the death on that cross. It was also the time in which the Father poured out the full measure of his wrath that we deserve, that same wrath that was, that was mine. It was reserved for me, but Christ took it. He took it for you the fullest measure of his wrath and satisfying his own justice on the sinless one as a propitiation. And our death is that we agree to the, the Father's righteous judgment and understand that we were fully deserving of that wrath, the full measure of it, and consequently accept his free gift of justification by faith on the merit of his grace being purchased by the Son. And what followed Christ's death his burial. He was placed in a tomb, lifeless. And what does that mean with us, for us? You know, it's therefore we were buried with him. Old self being buried with him after being crucified with him. We died to sin with him. The experience of being covered by a tomb, Christ took upon himself our sin. In his burial, he, be, he became separated from sin as a, as a master or condemner. Sin has no control over the dead. Sin can't touch. <laughs> can't touch you if you're dead. Our burial with him symbolized in water baptism, being immersed with water is a picture of an 
an earthly burial as, as, as he took upon himself in death. In the same way, we're, we're freed from sin in death, being buried. Sin can no longer affect us. The effects of sin are gone. Dead, buried, resurrected. We are resurrected into the newness of Christ. This resurrection, after his death and burial, came the resurrection that, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the, by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life, it says. Christ was, was res- resurrected by the glory of the Father. A new life. This is the vindication of the Son in defeating death. Resurrected into a new glorified body, bearing only the scars. As a, as a believer comes out of the tomb into this new life, it's the same thing. We have a new desire. We don't quite yet have a new body. Newness here is translated from kainos. It refers to a new quality and a new character found in the resurrected child of God. Sin had been the slave master. We died under him, that old slave master. He lost control of us in death under him. Sin characterized our old life, and, and righteousness is now our new character. Ezekiel 36 26 through 27 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will take your heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep them. You will keep my judgments and walk in them. And it's funny here, if you read that, the first spirit, I will put a new spirit in you is lowercase. That's new desires. And he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. That's the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer. It's not the same spirit. Psalm 40, verse 3 says, We have put on, we have put a, he has put a new song in my mouth. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 tells us that we who are in Christ are a new creation along with the Galatians 6.15, very similar. The old man is dead. He's dead, dear friends. The new man is alive, alive in Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And then we have this continual affirmation of this truth that Paul is so vehemently driving home. For we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly we should also be in the likeness of his resurrection. The old life has died. Out of necessity came a new life. I was, I was reminded of Nicodemus when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. And he says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus immediately is like, what am I going to do? Go back and enter a second time in my mother's womb. And he didn't get it. And it really wasn't, the problem wasn't Christ's explanation of, of being born again. It was the fact that Nicodemus didn't know he was dead. Sources say that he eventually got it. 
We don't know that. I mean, dead men don't know they're dead, honestly, really. I mean, if you're, it's just, you're done. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The old things, the old man. We were delivered from that, being renewed by the Spirit of God. Down, down in the same chapter. Verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you all also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you also were called in one body, and be thankful. This is the likeness of Christ working in us in sanctification. This is the, the product of this sanctification, these fruits of the Spirit. And then we see the certainty of this truth. Knowing that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to it. Appealing here to, to, to what should be obvious, by now, our old identity in Adam, the, the old man being crucified, with Christ, the second Adam. Old here is not in terms of like your age. It, it is peleos. It's the idea of being worn out. Useless. Ready to be thrown away. Done. Galatians 2.20 tells us, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The body of sin died and was buried. We are new, as in a new nature, inclined toward the things of God, toward good works, the old self, the former <clears throat> conduct in which we walked, as we just read in Colossians, is gone. Old passions and desires were crucified, dead, buried, raised to the newness of life. And some would argue that maybe we've got a dual nature, you know, half sinner, half saint, and God forbid, may it never be. Not close. Romans seven seventeen, Paul says, It is no longer I who sin, but sin that dwells in me. No longer I. I've undergone that permanent change. It's no longer I that sins. It's the old man, that old Old man is still there. Weighing me down. And Paul's not saying he's not responsible for his sin. He's, not, he's just no longer approving of it. It's like it's no longer me. I, don't know, I no longer approve of those things because on down in chapter 7 he says, well actually it was part of what I just said, but 
has then what good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law, and that is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do, but sin that dwells in me. For then, for if I, if I find in a law that evil is present within me, the one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And all that means is, I can't do it. Like, I have this new mind, I have these new desires, yet I do these things. It's, it's that law warring in my members. It's, it's just like, if, if I tell you not to touch this bottle, and you, you, you're going to want to touch that bottle more than anything right now. You know, it's that, that man, it's like, I'm, I'm going to do it. I don't care what you just said, but I'm going to do it. And that's the way it works. James likens it to being impregnated. You get that little bit of little bit of thought there, and then you kind of ponder on it a little more, and then you ponder on it a little more, and it's like fooling around. It's like, boom, you're pregnant. Now what do we got? You got yourself a little sin baby there. And when it's full grown, it brings, it brings forth death is what it says. I've never lived that one down when I said sin baby. It's like four years ago. I, <laughs> I love hiking. We were talking about hiking before church this morning. And there's a place over in North Carolina called Looking Glass Mountain. And what it is is it's this giant mound of lava that, that just juts up out of the, the earth. And, and when you're walking on it, it's almost like pavement. It's not smooth like a road, but it, it's, there's no, hardly any cracks in it. And, and there's no, like, edge it just slopes down really steep, and it's really high. And, and people get killed there because they want to walk up to that edge, and they're looking. They're like, oh, just a little bit further. I want to look. I want to see, you know. And it's a little bit further, and before you know it, you're at the bottom dead. And that's sin. I mean, we entertain that thought. It's like, oh, well, what about this? Oh, just, just think about it for a minute. Let me walk up to that edge, and before you know it, you're done. It's that body of sin that we still struggle. We died. That body is dead, we, but we still struggle with it. We're, we're this new creature living in an unredeemed flesh still. We, we still, still have to deal with that. And he goes on to say we are no longer slaves to it. 
down in verses 16 and 17. Let's look, let's look down in chapter 6 here. This is the second time. If you, if you read verse 15, it says, What then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? And it's another, God forbid. But in, in verse 16, he says, Do you not know that, that to present yourselves as slaves to obey, that you are one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience living, leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. So he, he elaborates more down there, and then you, you, I'm going to throw this at you. Everybody, we hear that term free will, and it's usually in regards to uh, whether a man can choose Christ or not. And if you want to debate that later, we will, but it's, it's not in Scripture anywhere. The only, only time free will is mentioned in Scripture is in the Old Testament to, to deal with a, an offering, a free will offering. It's, it's, it's if you wanted to give a little extra, that was that free will offering. So that's literally the only time free will is mentioned in the Bible. So I'll explain free will as best I can in the amount of time that we have, as simply as I can. And it's before we were converted, before we were made new in Christ, we, we could only sin. Even our best works, like the most devout atheist could help a little old lady cross the road and, you know, um, buy some food for someone that was hungry or any, any number of, of things that, that, that would be considered what's good. But it's the motivation. What's, the problem is the motivation behind it. It's like, well, why are you doing this? It's not to glorify God. So in that in and of itself is sin. So all you can do is sin continually. Slaves to it. It's your master. You can only sin... This way or that way, it was your best works were still sin. Sin owned us. We could only serve it. We, we couldn't really choose otherwise. You, you have no free will as a, as a slave. You get told what to do, where to be, when to wake up, when to go to bed, what to eat, when to eat. You have no freedom. And then when you're free in Christ, then, obviously... You can choose what is good, right? You still don't sometimes. You still want to still walk up to that edge. Sometimes you fall in. But only then you're free. You only have free will in Christ. And that's it. Sanctification. In sanctification, we're actively, actively pursuing holiness because if you're not, if you don't dislike your sin, if you don't loathe your sin, you're not being sanctified. The pursuit of holiness. It, it often escapes us, doesn't it? First John says, we say we have no sin. We, we're a liar. I think it was Joyce Myers that said she, she had, was able to quit sinning. I was like, you just lied. <laughs> you, literally, you just sinned again. Can't do it. He goes on to say, if, if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Christ Jesus, run to the cross. And bear with me for just a second. This is going to sound weird, but sin actually helps you run to the cross, right? 
I'm not saying it's a good thing or sin more so you can be more inclined to run to the cross, but when you sin, what do you do? When you get hurt, what do you do? You run to your mom or dad, these kids. They're like, I'm hurt. Father, I'm hurt. I messed up. Help me. So continually run into the cross, run into the Father. And being slave to sin, it was our duty and pleasure to sin. We enjoyed the, the slave master, even though he was a tyrant. We enjoyed serving him. And then this master, he, he ultimately loses his slave. When the Redeemer calls, this, this slave dies. And he's buried. He's no, he's no use to the master anymore. All you can do is bury him. He's going to stink up the yard if you don't. For he who has died has been freed from sin. The master could get upset and walk over and poke the, the dead slave with a stick and kind of coax him into maybe trying to do something. And, and there's no persuasion that's going to work to get a dead man to do anything. That slave has been liberated. Forever free in death. The master can't touch you any longer. In 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 and 2, Therefore, since Christ suffered with us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live, as the rest, live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. The will of God is our new desire. Loathing sin. I like what Martin Lloyd Jones, Jones, Jones Martin Lloyd Jones said. It, he, he likened this new life as this: is you've got two fields that are separated by a road. This field is owned by Satan, and you're toiling away at it, working in that field, doing the will of the master. Upon conversion, you, you move over across the street to God's field and you're working in that field. The perseverance of God producing holiness in you. And you can still look over at the old, the old way, the old life that you had in that, in that old field. And as we work, the old master still tempting you, wanting you to Come on back. And at times we get, we get sidetracked thinking about those old things that sometimes, I mean, just to be honest, brought, it brought you pleasure, right? Like, well, I could, I could do that. And sometimes you might fall into it. But, but the one thing is that you can never be drawn back into his field. You can't, you can't live there anymore. You're a slave to righteousness. You're a slave to God. Beloved, you can't not live to something that you died to. And the biggest problem we have is we're still dragging around this old dead man, these old bones, you know. 
still battling with that flesh. It's an odd thing to have a new mind and a dead body. We don't we don't have to sin more to acquire more grace. We don't. It's gonna it's gonna be natural. There's plenty of grace for all the sin that you're gonna do without trying. You know, there's that in Second Corinthians 12, Paul Paul speaks of that thorn in his flesh, and there's all these debates. What was Paul's thorn in the flesh? And you know, some say his eyesight. Some say it was, you know, uh, that. He had, was carrying this guilt from killing Christians and then became a Christian. And he's a preacher for, for the Gentiles. And the funny thing is, it says right before all this that it said that um, it was a messenger of Satan. The thorn in his flesh was a person causing trouble, causing sin, causing Paul to sin. He's weakened by this person. He prayed. God to remove this from his life and the answer he got is my grace is sufficient we all want to try to figure out what was wrong with Paul We're Like, oh man poor Paul couldn't see dragging around this guilt that's not the point the point is my grace is sufficient that's what we need to know we don't need to know if Paul had a hangnail or something it doesn't matter his grace is sufficient his grace is sufficient today. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. How to receive grace, repent, believe the gospel. What's the gospel? Christ died for you. He died for you, a sinner, taking on the full measure of God's wrath on your behalf. I'll leave you with these words from our Lord. He says in John 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Let's pray. Father, indeed, your word is truth. You are holy and magnificent. O merciful Father, use your word to sanctify us, make us more Christ-like. Lord, have your way with us. And if anyone here does not know you this morning, I pray that today would be their birthday into the kingdom of heaven. Again, Lord, we love you and we praise your holy name. And it's in Christ's name we all pray. All of God's children said. Amen.